and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is yours, Recluse, a.k.a. Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visit blog and author of A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, also all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book, Amount of Works, at the Farm's official store, which is at eFarmPodcast. That is eFarmPodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. At the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive gifts and content. And our all-access patrons have access to the Farm's monthly Zoom party meeting, my State of the Union addresses, periodic write-ups, dispatches from all the adventures I have, insights into the research that's ongoing over here, and all kinds of other goodies. It's a lot of material, guys, so definitely give that a consideration here. All right, I could not be more excited for today's guest. He is making his debut appearance on the farm, but he's a longtime fan of mine who has subsequently become a great friend. He is an artist by trade, having started out with tattoos and branched into a variety of other forms, including paints and sculptures. His work focuses on the link between ancient civilizations, their mythology, the occult, folklore, and mysticism. It is simply amazing, and I am proud to say I'm the owner of one of his original paintings. Hopefully I'll be able to uh, get a few more here uh, as the years go on because he is that good. Folks, I give you guys the great Henry Hablack. Henry, thank you so much for coming by this evening, sir. Oh, hi, Stephen. Thank you so much for having me. It's really um, a real honor and pleasure, honestly. I really enjoy your work and your show. And uh, yeah, I'm just very happy to be on here. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, I could not be for a more awesome episode. So not only am I uber excited to have Henry on for this show, but I'm equally excited for the subject that we are going to be discussing. It's a concept we've delved into a bit before here on the farm in the context of other topics, such as the Society of Cincinnati. But here, we're really going to take a deep dive into a subject shrouded in myth, speculation, and conjecture. It's potentially fueled by the minds of men, or precisely boys, since time immortal. It stretches back into our ancient past and continues to manifest in the modern world in a variety of curious forms, to put it mildly. It is an institution sometimes known as the Chorios or the Mennerbund. It can first be discerned in the highly controversial concept of the Proto-Indo-Europeans or the Pies, as we will refer to them for the sake of brevity throughout this the Pies culture, and through a variety of mythologies stretching from Europe to India. This is the true brotherhood of death, the dog soldiers, and the dog killers that have captivated us in their modern forms. This is going to be unbelievable, folks. So on that note, let's start the show.
So there's no way to really address this topic without invoking the Proto-Indo-Europeans or the Pies, the mythological peoples that Nazi Germany tried to build a state religion around. Uh, that brought a wee bit of toxicity to the topic, to put it mildly. To say nothing of the fact that the the archaeological, uh, the archaeology that constructed these notions in the first place is on shaky grounds. This has led to some serious revisions concerning the pies in the decades following World War II. So to begin with, what is the general conceptions of the pies before World War II, Henry? Um, all right. So the first people that kind of um, noticed this um, were linguists. It was a guy named William Jones, who was um, a member of the Royal Society. He was an Anglo-Welsh um, British colonist. In um, He was a judge in India, in Bengal. And um, he studied the Vedas and he was really interested in law down there. And he figured out that he couldn't really um, give accurate um judgments without understanding the laws that were written down in the Vedas, basically. Um, and then once he started studying that, he noticed that um, Sanskrit had a lot of similarities to Greek, Latin, um, and that they probably shared a common root. Um, and he was the person who first, I think, familiarized um, or popularized um, this notion. There was somebody before him, um, a Dutch guy named Marcus Zurius von Boxhorn, who proposed um, a proto-language, but he called it, he thought it was Scythian. Um, but anyway, so these guys noticed that, um, you know, all these cultures spanning from Northern Europe and England, in, uh, English to India, all had these common root words. And the most common, um, like father would be prother, um, brother, um, those types of words that were very similar in all these languages. So they figured out that there must be some sort of, um, common ancestor to this so fast forward a little bit to like german linguists in the 1800s and um these guys you know they were basically just there wasn't a lot of archaeology at this point on the subject so they were um, most of this was hypothesis and they basically came up with this idea of these like Aryans, which is also one of these words that they found in all these languages that meant um noble usually and they equated it with this race of people the pies um as we call them now and um, they envisioned them as sort of uh, these blonde-haired, um, blue-eyed Ger Germanic warriors that basically conquered the world from Germany um, sometime in prehistory. Um, you know, obviously these myths that these guys created, um, especially there was a concept of the uh, homeland, Yerhimat, I can't pronounce that, um, an ancestral homeland, and that was like really tied up um, and these nationalistic ideas of where these guys came from. So when Nazi Germany, you know, had the, all this ideology around the Volk um, and these people and how they were like the chosen race of conquerors that basically conquered all these weaker um, tribes around them. And that's what gave them the right to basically conquer other people. So where does the concept of the Baha'i stand then in 2023? All right. So after World War II and, you know, people realized that this was a kind of like toxic um, ideology and that there wasn't much archaeology done on it. Um, they actually started doing started doing some digs um, in certain areas. And so there was a, com a couple common um, or a couple competing hypotheses because they were people were all looking for like this place where these people came from, basically the, the homeland. Right. Um, 
And there were two competing theories. One was um, by a man named Colin Renfrew, and he had the Anatolian hypothesis, and he um, thought that this language was spread by um, Anatolian farmers from the Neolithic Revolution coming out of Anatolia and spreading up into Asia and Europe, um, and then also south through Iran and the Middle East. Um, and then there was another, there was a woman a little later, her name is Maria Gimbutas, and she did a ton of archaeology in Europe on these old settlements. Um, and she proposed this thing called the Kurgan hypothesis, which is that's the predominant hypothesis that I think, um, I think a lot of archaeologists agree with nowadays, unless like you get into like these nationalists, like, like a lot of um, like Indian nationalists think the homeland is in India um basically you'll see a lot of this times with these people like whatever nationalist culture parts of certain cultures will kind of use um pies and claim them as their own basically um but anyway the kurgan hypothesis that gambudas had was that um these people were um basically patriarchal warriors like a warlike not necessarily all warriors but more warlike than the peoples around them they domesticated the horse and they slowly spread from like the steppes of um west asia um like kind of above the black sea which was like giant grasslands basically um and slowly migrated south west um and they kind of spread this language um through their migrations and that's the commonly accepted theory now i think is the kurgan hypothesis now, how does this, uh, out of curiosity, fit into some notions like those put forth in Hamlet's Mill? Because, I mean, it is still kind of focused more like on linguistics, right? Um, well, the so a lot of it is based on linguistics, but a lot of the guys now, there's a couple people. Um, David Anthony is an archaeologist. Um, he wrote this book called The Horse, the Wheel, and Language that is um, – probably like the, the f definitive work on Indo-Europeans at the moment. Um, it's the latest thing that's come out. It's got all this archaeology on basically, they just, they noticed um, the, the language, obviously that's what the first thing that people notice with the pies, but um, now the archaeology basically shows these kind of technologies that were slowly um, moving from the steppe to the West that these different cultures were kind of, you know, it would show up in their grave sites basically. And before like more Europe had more pottery and not so many, not as many weapons. And then you start seeing this introduction of bronze daggers, um, bronze axes, um, and less, less pottery um, with the Indo-Europeans. Um, so cultures like the Yam Yamnaya is like one of the ones that um, I think, um, was like a major avenue of migration. Um, but yeah, the Hamlet's Mill stuff, I'm not super familiar with um, maybe the linguistics in there that tie them to that. Although I know that, you know, I know it's another comparative mythology, which I can, I think kind of a lot of these people were doing. Um, one of the first people was Jacob Grimm of the Brothers Grimm in the 1800s. He did a lot of comparative comparative mythology in northern europe and noticed that a lot of these myths um were very very similar um across you know great distances and just kind of hit like kind of a lot of them hit the same um had a lot of the same points in them you know imagery or symbolism 
Yeah, it was a fascinating. I've noted that a lot too with uh, Sir Francis Child when he was going through some of the origins of the Child ballads. Of course, he relied a lot on um, some of the accounts of the Brothers Grimm as well. But yeah, it's just, you know, it's fascinating to see how many characteristics of these mythos, I mean, bear similarities across the uh, the different cultures of Europe. So um, do you have anything else for us here in terms of what the hypothetical culture of the Koryos might have been like? Um, so, yeah, so what they envisioned, they think that basically these um, Koryos bands were young adolescent bands of male warriors and um it was they were basically in this liminal state between childhood and adulthood and they would be taken out of um their family home or whatever or if they were pastoralists out of like the um the main tribe and kind of pushed to the edges of society and from there they would raid um other settlements and also protect their own tribes um, and they're often associated with wolves and dogs. But the the I think it's the very important about like the liminal space outside of society is like I think one of the main um, ideas that you're going to be seeing a lot of here. Yeah, no, that's very crucial because I mean it was it's important to emphasize like when the U's were in these Kuros, uh, Koros, which might have. Again, you know, it varied from civilization to civilization. They might be in them, you know, on the uh, hunt with them for like six months to, you know, two or three years, maybe even longer than that. But I mean, frequently, um, you know, the young men were sent out into the wild with nothing other than their weapons. They forego uh, any property or anything like that. And uh, they had to take on a lot of... Um, acts that would have normally been uh frowned upon if not uh punished uh punished by severe consequences in uh normal society but it was excused because they did exist in this sort of liminal state um i mean you could almost describe them as being dead in a sense to the communities that they were coming from when they were members of the Corios. a notion that we'll also get into further here as we get more into this so these bands are often described as well as being led by an older male or two who have chosen to remain in this realm permanently. In a sense, they're almost shaman-like figures. So can you get into that a bit for us? Yeah. So I found one description um, called, they were sometimes called Corionos. But like we said, the, a lot of this like language is hypothetical. It's reconstruction of what we think the language was, but whatever. So Corionos, which I find... Um, I made a note too, it's similar to like, kind of sounds like Kronos, but anyway, um, he was the leader of this band um, and they would kind of stay, you know, they were people that didn't go back to society basically. So they would be in this liminal space for their entire lives sometimes. And also another curious aspect that I've kept noticing again and again is that um, a lot of times these bands would, they would raid other um like neighboring tribes or something, but also they would colonize sometimes. So they would basically, sometimes these whole bands would never come back to their regular societies. They would just leave and just start a new city somewhere. Um, and, you know, I feel like a lot of these legends of, you know, you see these legends of these like famous warriors in all these different um, kind of Indo-European cultures. And it seems like that's what they're talking about is these kind of legendary Curios that never went back to society and just kind of 
you know, live that life their entire lives. It's kind of akin to like modern, you know, special forces or, you know, lifelong army people, you know. Um, but I, I find that to be really interesting. A lot, of, a lot of colonization myths, especially in Greece, and a lot of them have like, um, you know, have to do with wolves. It just, it's a motif that you just see over and over again with this stuff. Yeah, I mean, so many civilizations and city-states in um, ancient Europe and the Near East, I mean, also claim foundation mythos from, you know, various warriors. I mean, Hercules was obviously a, a popular one. Some people connected to the Trojan Wars would be another one. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that was definitely a big thing. And I think that's also an important element um, because it's, you know, again, we don't know this. This is all really hypothetical, but it's most likely that this is one of the reasons why the Indo-European, Proto-Indo-European language is so prominent uh, throughout Europe and the Near East is because of these bands and all of the various colonies uh and also the uh, cultures that they took over and consumed as well, uh, you know, and around their uh, different wanderings. So that's probably one of the reasons why the language and the mythos and a lot of the other surrounding aspects of this culture are so prevalent throughout a good chunk of um, what's long been one of the more developed regions of the world. Um, yeah, they, can, I, can I add something right there real quick? I mean, I cut you off. Go for it. Um so uh shit i just lost it um yeah so uh so we were talking earlier about what the um difference between pre-world war ii and after world war ii the scholarship was so pre-world war ii they thought these were all invaders and and that's not that's not wrong they were war bands that definitely um you know like waged war and invaded other people but um the new archaeology a lot of the ideas are that kind of this like Indo-European, um, it was like a toolkit, which it, they weren't a people. It was kind of like a technology. You know what I mean? Like today we have like iPhones and everybody uses iPhones because it's just, it's convenient for how we live our lives. So like just the skill set that these people had, which would be horses, mobility, wagons. Um, and it, a lot of it had to do with this like um, client patron um like tribute and host tribute. So like even people that you meet um, later who aren't necessarily the same tribe as you can be brought into this Indo-European kind of sphere if they do the right sacrifices, say the right words, have the same um, like the like host reciprocality, which you see a lot in like the Odyssey. Um, you know, these warriors that when they would travel and they would meet other kings and these guys would come bring them in and give them gifts. And this gifts exchange was like another um one of these things that kind of led to like this, this, this kind of spread of this culture, if you want to call it, you know, which really, like I said, I think it's more of like a, and that's what David Anthony talks about in horse wheel language, that it's, it's more of a spread of like a toolkit of culture than it is a spread of people. And it's not to say that these people didn't, there weren't tribes that took over other tribes, but it was more gradual. And, you know, there was assimilation going on too. Yeah, because it was a very easy culture to adapt to, is my understanding. I mean, it wasn't, uh, I mean, I'm more familiar with the spread, uh, you know, mainly like in ancient Greece, but uh, the understanding that I have is that, I mean, you know, the religious aspects, for instance, were a lot more simplistic than what had um, 
uh, prevailed previously under a lot of like the matriarchies and what have you. I mean, it wasn't uh, like you had a lot of these complex rituals and things like that to pick up. I mean, to be sort of uh, brought into this culture and because of the you know nomadic aspects of it i mean all those traditions i'm sure too that i mean there were less ties obviously to lands or specific groups of people and what have you then you might have which is a bit of an irony i suppose given how it was uh later used yeah yeah it's um i could definitely see that i must say that's you know there's maybe an air of snow crash to that too uh, I'm sure you're familiar with that, the Neil Stevenson science fiction mo- um, novel. It's kind of oh, no, no. What? Could you could you go over that a little bit? Well, it goes into this language that was based on ancient Sumerian that this is kind of like the central piece of it. It was like an early cyberpunk. Well, not early, but it was like one of the great cyberpunk novels. And, you know, it gets it's rediscovered uh, and put online. And it's sort of like this mind virus that's encoded within uh, the Sumerian language, and I was kind of thinking, I mean, that's almost like what you see with the Proto-Indo-European oh. stuff. It's almost like a mind virus with these certain phrases or something that catches on, and there's maybe that's why it's also continued uh, kind of in keeping with the theme of technology with all of this. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a meme that spreads, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, who knows? Perhaps it was more mimetic, so to speak, than yeah. the other... Uh, uh, competitors during this era which was part of the reason why it uh, became so prevalent yeah that's that's the other thing that that uh david anthony was saying it's like it, a lot of it is like centered around like these elaborate funerals and feasts that you would basically and they would count wealth not with land but how many cows you had so like how many cows you could sacrifice for a feast and how many people you could feed with that you know and it should become more elaborate and elaborate, I'm sure. I mean, if you read some of like these rituals, like funeral rituals in the Vedas, they're they're crazy, you know. It's like multiple horse sacrifices and feeding, you know. You you sacrifice ten horses, you can feed like thousands of people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that would have been a big deal, especially because horses were so instrumental to, you know, I mean, warfare and so much, I mean, agriculture, so many other things. Um, and then, you know, I'll point out, too, in terms of the practicality of this and why it probably spread, because there was another useful purpose to it. I would imagine that you're not going to hear a lot of historians talk about, and that revolves around the fact that many ancient cultures were also polygamous to some extent or another, and typically this meant that, um, especially amongst the aristocracy, um, the males had usually more than one wife or concubine or what have you. This was especially true in royal families and things of that nature. And, uh, you know, not to pass judgment on these arrangements, but one of the issues when these kind of social structures exist is that, you know, there's not enough women to go around for the guys then, uh, you know, I mean, if one guy has 10 women and I mean, that means that probably somebody else is going to be without them. So a lot of times when civilizations have a lot of young, horny men who don't, uh, you know, have prospects with women, uh, there can become real issues with that. So sending them off into the wilderness probably had a certain appeal in that regard and as we'll see if we get into the modern era maybe some groups have actually continued uh for those more pragmatic reasons with these uh customs yeah anyway let's get into the krasnas amerske 
think I got a pretty decent one on that. <laughs> yeah, I think we agreed on that. A local uh, Russian step uh, for which is a location in the Russian steppes. Um, let's get into this here for a second. It's here we've found the best ar archaeological evidence for this institution of the Koros. So, what was uncovered at the Krasnos Amerske? Okay, so this was actually a site that was dug by David Anthony, the guy who wrote the horse wheel language, and they found um, an enormous amount of dog bones. Um, they found other bones there, but I think 50% of the bones were found were dog or wolf bones, which that's like every other site that they found in that area in that region was less than 10%. And they noticed that all of those um, dog bones were, they can date what time of year they were um, killed, and they all seem to be killed around uh, winter solstice. So it seems like we have a ritual center um, where you would hypothetically, um, once you were initiated into the society, you would come there, probably sacrifice um, a dog. Um, sometimes they, they theorize that sometimes it was you would raise this dog and then you would go there and um, kill it um, kind of, and that would kind of separate you from childhood into this liminal state. Basically you're symbolically killing your childhood, you know, and if you're going out to kill and raid other people, you're going to have to have some, you know, um, something to get you ready for that probably. Um, yeah, there's, there's some theories right that they actually like the dogs that they sacrificed were dogs that they had probably raised since yeah they were, like younger kids as well yeah because most of the dogs were older they were old they were like, yeah it wasn't just like some random dog either yeah. that they were you know being asked to kill it was like a beloved pet um you know this the whole experience is from what we can recount at the Kresnos Amerske were you've you know basically designed to uh be as traumatic as possible more or less for these kids yeah and you probably have like rites of passage you know there might have been hallucinogenic drugs involved who knows we can all be speculate about all this stuff well, right wasn't there a mock burial actually that was like the other thing that i seem to recall that it really stood out to me there was some speculation that they might have originally buried the kids with the dogs or something like that or oh i haven't read that i read there were pits um and yes. I mean, it, may, that may, it makes sense though because i feel like that's a very common form of initiation would be these trials where you're like going underground or i mean it that links back to like cave like worship in caves and going into the you know yeah because they had, they dug all those pits they had found like at the site of the Kresnos amerske and yeah that was i think one of the theories was that essentially you know the kids were put into the pits and there was maybe like a mock burial or something because it seems like a lot of this revolved around death and the acceptance of death i mean yeah so you know you killed the dog but then also again in a lot of these secret society and mystery school initiations i mean also confronting your own death is a big part of it um you know i mean actually a uh an example of this that from pop culture that I'm sure many of you are familiar with um, comes from Empire Strikes Back, um, either the second or the uh, fifth Star Wars movie, depending upon your point of view on that one. Uh, but it's where Luke goes into the cave when he's training with Yoda and he's confronted with Vader there and he beheads Vader and then um, the mask comes off and he sees that it's actually him, I believe. So 
Yeah, that's alluding to a lot of this kind of stuff. Um, again, George Lucas loved the Masks of God and some Joseph Campbells, we all know, so it's not surprising it would show up in something like Star Wars. All right, so how did historians and archaeologists view the role of the Koryos uh, played in the spread of pie culture and language then? I mean, I know we've already kind of alluded to this quite a bit, but is there anything else you want to add on this subject? Um, yeah, well, like we said, they would be, they would probably be the first people who would kind of, um, they were scouts too, you know, they live on the edge of society. So they would be the first people that would interact with other cultures that would live on the edge. Right. Um, so once they probably came back from their time as curios, um, you know, they're, they were probably like gathering intelligence at the same time too. And if you're going to actually have these, like, like larger migrations, possibly with like women and children um they would make excellent scouts basically um and then the other thing too is that a lot of these cultures that were they i mean these people were like these couriers would they basically like they were scary they usually attacked at night they were naked um you know wearing like wolf's clothes like people were scared of these things you know so sometimes these other cultures would either um either try to leave gifts for them or try to kind of um, become in this sphere of Indo-European um, influence. Like it's another reason to kind of um, pick up these belief systems and cultures, because if you were in it with their in group, then they weren't supposed to fight you or raid you. Basically they were supposed to defend you. Um, so it would give, it would give insight for other cultures to basically, you know, appease these warriors, you know, So we've also been alluding a lot to the curious association with the dead in many civilizations. Do you have anything else on that uh, to add here? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I feel like it's really curious that, um, you know, they're associated with dogs and wolves and mostly in every culture, dogs are associated with death or like guarding the underworld. So I think that is like a big, one of the big tells right there. Um, also like another aspect of this, these war bands would be like the, um, like remembering ancestors and telling heroic stories of the past, because there was kind of, these things were kind of, it was usually the like aristocrats, right? Like the elite males of the society or who would join these groups. So you would remember like past deeds of, you know, the conquerors that came before you or whoever, you know? Um, and then you were also almost when you're initiated into this thing it's almost like you you were dead so you actually you were the ancestors you know they were basically living through you by um, recreating this like ritual drama again and again and again all right so how does this relate to our modern customs of halloween then well that's what i was kind of alluding to is like you know if these uh these other people who you'd be raiding or or you know stealing their women or whatever um well, I'm sorry, we're getting ahead of myself. So masking was like another aspect of the choreos. They would often don um, wolf masks, 
um, dog masks. And you can see this in a lot of like um, Greek vase art, actually. Um, it's very prevalent in um, the berserkers of, uh, you know, like Viking culture. Also, like um, they're more associated with bears sometimes, but kind of the same thing, wore animal skins. Um, so you're masking, you're taking on the identity of some somebody else, which, I mean, that's Halloween right there, right? And then you're sometimes you're going door to door. Um, maybe you're not going door to door, but you're raiding these other villages. And, you know, maybe if they leave something for you, uh, you leave them alone. You know what I mean? And that's kind of sounds like trick or treat to me. I don't know about you. Um, but yeah, I think it, I think it's very similar. It's funny how like a lot of these, uh, you know, really old beliefs have, are just like modernized today and are just like, so kind of benign, you know, and, uh, when you figure out where this stuff comes from, it's, it's, uh, pretty interesting yeah no it certainly is and um yeah it's certainly a uh, an interesting form of uh trick-or-treating to put it mildly <laughs> yeah yeah but yeah you can see that and then uh there was also the association with black too a lot of times with the courios did wear some kind of garments it was usually like a black robe or something to that effect um so, right, they, as you, you know, we've been talking about this quite a bit, but they had this long-standing connection with wolves. Uh, do you got anything else on that? Um, just that, you know, it seems that the modern, um, you know, legends of werewolves um, all kind of seem to stem from this practice. You know, uh, I think, I forget, it's a Hittite or Greek, right? but, um, you know, the word wolf usually just also meant like outlaw. So, you know, and that's what kind of these, they were encouraged to do this, basically, these bands. They're living on the edge of society like animals, almost, right? Um, and they're adapt adapting these, like, wolf-like traits, which are hunting in packs, right? They're also um, known to attack at night. They were known to use trickery, which, you know, a lot of, like, the, like, that wasn't really... Um, that was kind of frowned on in like um, the warfare back then, like with adult males, you know, but these, the curios could basically behave like wolves and, you know, act like them. Yeah. One place where you see a lot of this is in ancient Rome um, where, you know, it definitely seems like in the foundation myths, it's uh, the further you dig back, you see kind of the hints of, um, you know, the foundation probably coming out of like one of these curios bands. And it was especially evident in the festival of the Lupercalia, uh, which was a very old festival in ancient Rome. And in fact, it probably predated the founding of Rome itself. Uh, it took place on February 15th. And then there was another interesting festival, the Quirinalia, uh, which took place on February 17th. So two days later, and they were closely related to each other. Uh, Cornelia, I believe that's how it's pronounced, was essentially the um, the form of the deified god like Remus, you know, or Romulus, rather, the founder of ancient Rome, along with his brother Remus. Um, so you had these two festivals there, and it's long perplexed historians uh, because the center part of it was uh, especially with the Lupercalia was the uh the cave it was centered around uh one of the hills in ancient Rome one of the seven hills 
Uh, and this was the one specifically that theoretically had the cave where uh, the liver cow, where the she-wolf who had suckled Romulus and Remus resided. And in some accounts, the uh, Lupercalia had been brought to this region even prior to Romulus and Remus um, from a figure, almost semi-mythological figure from Arcadia, the Greek uh, city-state where the werewolf mythos came from. That's uh, also the sort of peculiar variations that they have on Pan and Apollo and uh Zeus, the deities when they're at uh, Arcadia were always referred to as like Pan Lycos or Zeus. Yeah, their wolf forms, right? Yes, yes, yes. Because again, it's the oh. indications are that originally it was a wolf deity behind both of these. And then later they grafted uh, these different, uh, you know, these other gods onto them. And it's especially interesting in the case of Pan, uh, because Pan's worship originates from Arcadia, right? So, uh, there's a strong possibility that Pan was actually originally a wolf god who transformed into a goat. And there's oh. definitely instances of you know evidence of that in both Arcadia and ancient Rome, where, you know, again, you have the kind of Pan Lycos figure who has these references back to the wolf. And then in uh, Rome itself, uh, eventually the Lupercalia, they would sacrifice goats and they would uh, consume them as part of the festival. But again, given the association that it had initially with wolves and so forth, it's entirely possible that that was the original sacrifice. And then the goat was brought in at a latter time. So again, you know, I mean, all of this is very interesting. And then, of course, um, there was the shepherd who had uh, found Ramos and Remus after they were circled by the she-wolf, whose name was Faustus. So Faust, I mean, that kind of goes into, I think, the whole uh, later association of Pan with the devil, you know, with the goat legs and all this other kind of stuff. So, I mean, it's really interesting to see sort of the progression of this, but how it all sort of kind of harkened back to this wolf god that, uh, you know, has just been hidden. Of course, in Rome, you know, they had the earlier uh, version of Pan there that was known as Faunus. And again, there's some speculation that that was the actual wolf god. I mean, Faunus was another fascinating deity because he was a big thing in Rome uh, in the early days, especially, but he just wasn't really talked about a lot. Um, but yeah, as you can see, you know, there was in both Greece and uh, ancient Rome, there was definitely some very striking instances uh where you can possibly discern traces of this cult around this wolf deity uh that gradually you know took on aspects arguably like the pan cult probably in latter parts of uh hellenistic and then later uh the roman empire so yeah it's it's an interesting progression yeah the rome stuff is real is really interesting yeah that that myth definitely has something to do with that um and you see in greece you see a lot of um colonization by um people with the surname Lyca, like Lyca apollo too so like a lot of stuff in the name of apollo um which like you said if it was originally a wolf deity and then they were basically doing the same migrations kind of in that in that spirit and also became Apollo. The other interesting I noticed too is, um, you know, to go up the uh, celestial stuff, you know, Gemini and 
Canis Minor and Canis Major are all kind of in the sky together as well. So I'm wondering if that would be linked in some way to those myths as well. And kind of uh, maybe Canis Minor or Canis Major used to be a wolf. Um, yeah, because it seems like the twin mythos like appear in a lot of this as well. And I mean, yeah. I think that there is an earlier connection, I mean, to some of the stellar mythology as well in all of this, no doubt. Uh, which kind of brings us to the next uh, widespread mythos that this uh, institution, the Curios, was probably instrumental in uh, uh, crafting. So how did the Curios influence the latter notions such as the Wild Hunt, which again appears throughout European civilization since at least the time of the Roman Emperor? Okay, uh, I got some stuff on this, but I'm actually really interested to hear what you have to say, because I've heard you talk about the Wild Hunt a few times. Let me go over my stuff quickly. Um, so I noticed the Wild Hunt was obviously a folklore motif. Um, it's found all over Europe, especially in Northern Europe. Um, Jacob Grimm, again, one of the guys who um, kind of compiled a lot of these legends and myths. Um, and a lot of times he was associated with um, Odin who was associated with wolves again. So there we go. We got the same thing. Um, also, they were also associated with horses, which is like another big thing that, um, you know, the pies were associated with. So you're hitting these like same motifs again. So it seems to be some sort of like remembrance of, you know, this these ancient kind of wild bands of hunters. So that's, that's also kind of how, you know, they're also associated with hunting at, at uh, later parts when they became less wild. Like I think some of the Greek um, war bands were more associated with hunting than with, you know, raiding enemies and killing people. Um, yeah, I have I have a really good quote from uh, a scholar. Her name is Susan Greenwood, and she says the wild hunt primarily concerns an initiation into the wild and untamed forces of nature in its dark chthonic aspects. You know, and at this point, by the medieval ages, you're probably, or even by Roman times, you're kind of removed from these, like, you know, small warrior bands where this stuff is more kind of legend, you know, that's that's probably sitting around. It's, it's in the subconscious or unconscious somewhere, you know, and um, occasionally you would get, get hints of it still, um, because apparently people would have visions of this stuff. Um, because that's I was reading a couple of accounts where these people were seeing like you know 30 huntsmen on the road with horses and dogs and you know giant flaming like eyes. Um, uh, it's a pretty interesting motif, it's pretty cool. Um, yeah, I'm really um, interested to hear your thoughts on that actually. Well, it's interesting too. I was thinking you can kind of see remnants of that in like some of the uh, the fairy faith, like in the UK as well. I'm thinking specifically the child ballad Tamlin, uh, which is one of the older ones. I think it goes back to at least the 16th century. And if I'm not mistaken, there might have even been like a poem of it uh, from even earlier. But again, it makes reference to the uh, the fairy folk, you know, doing their procession on horses and so forth uh, at a Halloween which is in keeping with this but um you know the classic kind of concept of the wild hunt uh, that most people are familiar with comes from nordic culture and in this woden uh, goes out in his celestial hunt with the spirits of the dead 
you know, in theory, uh, during great battles, this, you know, whole procession would be flying around and Woden would pick off the uh, warriors with the most grit as they were being cut down and all this other good stuff. And this seems to go back to the curios and the concept of them existing in this liminal state and effectively being dead while they were on their raids. So in the early years, it was almost like this, you know, literal thing where they're perceived as being the, you know, the actual dead in their societies and almost inhabiting the state where they're taking on the personas of their ancestors. And I mean, they might've gone to great lengths to literally do that. Again, as uh, Henry's alluded to at a few points here, it's there was a lot of evidence that different variations in the curios used psychedelic drugs. Uh, even when they were going into battle, there's later accounts, you know, these guys talking about how they're possessed by Dionysus or Ares, you know, when they're going into conflicts. But I think you know, earlier it might even have been that you were trying to you know, I mean, almost merge your consciousness with your ancestors or the earlier aspects of your tribe and these, uh, you know, whole processes. Um, and then there's another aspect of this as well, where there might have been a full-blown ritualistic aspect uh, that involves some kind of sacrifice in this. And this is a notion that I've kind of toyed with uh, after reading it's an excellent book called The Celestial Hunter um, that really is a great exploration of the wild hunt. I can't remember the author now off the top of my head, unfortunately. But if you go Google The Celestial Hunter, I'm sure it'll come up. But anyway, um, again, we probably did not consume meat for many years after modern Homo sapiens emerged, right? And even then afterwards, it seems like there was a long period where humans essentially existed as scavengers. We didn't, you know, kill animals, you know, we just feasted on stuff that was left over, like carrion birds or something to that effect, which is also interesting when you consider that Zeus is so closely associated with ravens and you see a lot of carrion birds connected to some of these uh, different traditions that are connected to the Kyrgios. But anyway, so... Part of that might have been related to how we perceived animals in this time frame. Because again, you know, early humanity, it seems like we really didn't distinguish between human beings and animals. Um, my mother probably still doesn't know the difference between a dog and a person, honestly. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was much more literal back then. Um, you know, again, this is why I'm trying to emphasize, like, the trauma that these kids might have felt at uh, Krasnos Amerske when they were asked to kill their dogs. This dog, you know, wasn't just this cherished pet, but it was potentially perceived as a literal brother with a spirit. You know, I mean, every bit is equal to that of a human being. So the point I'm getting at with this is that when we started hunting and killing animals, it was a profoundly traumatic thing for us. It was something that we had to develop effectively all these different meats and what have you to try to come to terms with. So this was probably a part 
in a lot in good likelihood of some of the early initiations just experiencing the trauma of killing this being that you see as being equal to yourself even if it's a different species feeling its blood on your hands all this other kind of stuff and you know as time progresses hunting becomes more normal it doesn't necessarily have the same kick that it did in the early days so again let's just say hypothetically if you're you know, you're trying to recreate that experience well you might have to kill something that would now be perceived as above an animal in the food uh, chain so to speak and again i you know i know this might seem like a bit of a stretch but when you go back and look at something like the lubricala the uh the specific hill where the festivals were celebrated on it's known that um in one of the few instances where there is multiple sources that have documented this uh, from antiquity and we also appear to have found the gravesite and the bones uh the romans did perform human sacrifice this would have been probably like around the third century bc it was i think they were like getting their asses kicked by like the gauls or something like that really badly militarily and they also had the shrine to fortune you know the guard victoria the goddess of victory on the top of that which is where our modern day columbia comes from and um so anyway you know i mean she was the she's palace athenia and her warlike persona to give you know glory to warriors and all this other stuff and you know, we're getting our asses handed to us by whatever you know tribe that's coming down well we've done everything else we could think of spiritually well why don't we try killing somebody let's see what happens yeah that's uh what went down with that so well again why did they do it though in that specific area well it might have been because there were still this time i think it was around like 296 bc maybe some individuals who could discern remnants of the older traditions with that with the wolves and the curios and all this other good stuff well um what was can i, can I go in a couple more things uh just sure. to add to that? um yeah that was really really fascinating interesting um they there's also at in arcadia they found evidence of human sacrifice i'm pretty sure um and it, that was like at the highest peak where you could basically see the entire like Peloponnese from up there. And it was a temple to Zeus that was there, Zeus in his wolf form again. So we're hitting the same motifs again. Um, and then the other thing I was thinking about when you were talking about um, the like these ecstatic warriors, um, um, you know, sometimes it like and the dog sacrifice basically is like an inversion because like even in those cultures, I don't think they ate dogs like that wasn't something normal. So it's it was a way to, you know, reach that liminal space like you were saying. Yeah, like, it was breaking taboos. Taboo. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, yeah, the other thing is associated with the ecstatic warriors. Um, and then, you you know, there's also a couple myths. Um, you know, we we're talking about Hercules earlier he gets into a rage and kills his wife and kids. Um, then there's also a Greek king from Thrace called Lycurgus, who also, he like, um, 
he kicks Dionysus out of his um, country and it makes him mad and he kills his wife and kids in like an ecstatic battle rage. And his depictions on um, on Greek pottery are basically just a naked guy with a wolf skin on. So, I mean, you just oh, keep seeing the this. king of Arcadia, Lycon. Um, no, there's a different guy, no, Lycurgus. There's so many... Oh, from, and from Thrace, huh? Thrace, yeah, yeah, from Thrace, Lycurgus. Um, yeah, now that's... So. Thrace is another really interesting region with a lot of this, too, because, yeah, I think that... Actually, if I remember correctly, that was where the Orpheus, uh, Orpheus cult came from originally. Oh, that makes sense, yeah. It was also closely associated with the Wild Hunt and what have you. So, yeah, Thracian civilization is another one that seems to have, like, a lot of trace elements of this. Yeah. Yeah, pretty fascinating stuff, how this stuff, you know, it's, you know, we feel like these cultures were kind of like separate, and they were, they all had their, their like individualist aspects, but it seems like certain things that they all kind of shared in common, you know, and just that these warrior bands seem to be one of them, and like the association with like wolves and dogs, and possibly human sacrifice, you know, I think that, um, have you read that, the one book, The One-Eyed God? Uh, yes, I do believe I've read that one. Yes, yes. I think they talk about, I haven't read the whole thing, but I think they talk in there about like there's a, a dice game. Yes, the dice game. And then, yes, whoever won, quote unquote, would uh, get to be the uh, the leader or something for a designated period of time. And then because he was essentially taking on like the persona of the, you know, the dog slash wolf god, and then he would eventually be sacrificed. Yep. This is like where the whole concept of the dog killer comes from. Um, a little hint there for you fans of Under the Silver Lake when I finally get around to doing my show on that, which will be awesome. <laughs> yeah. And then also, um, oh, go ahead. I lost it. Never mind. All right. Um, well, anyway, what role uh, in the Curious play in navigating the tensions between older establishment and society and their younger ascending rivals? We'll get into that for a second before we start looking at some of these specific civilizations more. Yeah, well, we kind of hinted at this earlier, um, you know, and I feel like if you were like uh, like an older man and like an established society and you had property and probably wives, you know, there was probably always this underlying tension like you were talking about, about you know, I have all these women and there's all these young men who have, you know, um, a lot of testosterone and, um, you know, these like wild urges, you know, you need to put them somewhere in your society because you know, like that they're going to basically have these wild instincts um, and what better way to use them is to use them against, you know, your enemies almost. Um, and it kind of, siphons like undesirable elements and it's like an outlet for wild rowdy behavior basically um where you can be like all right well, you have a license to do these things but just don't do them against your own people go fight our enemies and do that you know um and then it seems like the the, the people who were really into it they never stopped you know they didn't they didn't reassimilate to society they just kept doing it sometimes they would maybe colonize other places or and sometimes they would you know just basically just be these warrior bands um you know i do find it fascinating too with the parallels with shamanism and the older figures that stay with the choreos because i mean you know there's there's a lot of romanticism around the institution of the shaman now but um they were very much trickster figures and if you've read some of the older accounts they definitely engaged in 
behavior that we would consider to be pretty psychotic. I mean, I'm talking about like in terms of going out and brutally murdering people and just, yeah, there was some pretty nutty stuff that's been documented with that over the years. Um, but anyway, okay, so let's get into several of the remnants of the Koryos and classical civilizations. So, you know, we've already touched on a few briefly, but uh, can you get into the Ephibos of Athens now for us? Yeah, so these were usually young men between the ages of 17 and 20. They would live on the edge of society. They had marginal status, no citizenship, no property. Um, and their goal, their um, purpose was to guard the limits of their community. And they wore black tunics, as we talked about earlier. Um, and they trained to hunt at night. Um, there wasn't necessarily, um, you know, they weren't necessarily fighting hunting humans um and they were more these were more protectors but it seems to be a late um uh, remembrance of this same kind of tradition but i mean at this point you're in athens like you're in a little more civilization so you're not really you know you're not raiding and uh stealing women at this point um you know most of that stuff is done i think in war once you're at this point, like in the classical era, um, you know, but, but still it's like a reminiscent of the same, same ideas that we have, you know? Yeah. I can't remember off the top of my head, but I feel like they kind of had this sort of reenactment of the earlier stages of that with Eleusis too. I mean, it might've, there's some thinking that the Eleusian mysteries might've actually derived from that because they were, especially later they were really closely associated with apollo and again i mean apollo obviously the archer is another god very closely tied to hunting along with his uh, sister artemis but as we you know had talked about earlier again apollo was another one of the gods connected to arcadia and his wolf form so yeah that's you know again it kind of seems like an even a very sophisticated society like athens uh they still had these sort of remnants of it and these sort of ritualistic reenactments of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's all over Greece for sure. No, yeah. let's go into one more well-known example of this, and that would be in Sparta with the Cryptea there. So what was their story? Um, sort of similar, but more intense version. Um, so I think most people are familiar with like Spartan martial culture um, and young men were usually taken um out of their homes pretty early, I think, and um, started military training. But this was like, this, I think, was specifically for the elite um, that would be trained to be leaders of their society. And I found a couple conflicting um, um, writings about this, where some people say that there was human sacrifice and some say that there wasn't and whatever. But uh, usually what I found is that um, their main job was basically to live at the edge of society. They didn't, they didn't wear sandals. They had to basically get by on their wits and trickery, but their main um, purpose was to kill helots, um, which were like the Spartan agricultural slave class, basically. Um, and basically these cryptia were almost like terrorists or secret police that would, um, their job was to like find helots that were either out after dark or, um, you know, were getting too strong or big for their britches, um, as we would probably say, and basically kill them, you know. Um, and it was a form of terrorism to prevent the helots from uprising. Um, 
And funny enough, the guy who started that, his name was Lycurgos, was the lawgiver of um, Sparta that started that practice, which is another name for Wolf, the Lyca, um, that we keep seeing. Um, so yeah, again, it seems to have the origins in these Koryos warrior bands. I also yeah. find it, I also find it interesting that um, you know, to be a leader in that society, you basically had to kill a slave. Um, is I feel like the most fascinating part about that, where there's a definitive other, and to actually, you know, like I'm saying, to be at the top of your society, you have to be okay with killing people below you. Um, which I find a lot of parallels, honestly, today. You know. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think the concept of the cryptocracy also came from Sparta, if I remember correctly, too. Um, even though I'm not, you know, again, obviously much of a fan of Mike White Hoffman, though the, he wasn't the one who originated using that uh, phrase, though, either in that uh, the, the context that it now has. But um, cryptocracy democracy though i think is definitely a good one to describe that and it would be interesting to know if it's related to the uh cryptaria there because yeah i mean it's even if i mean it wasn't considered to be human sacrifice i mean that's basically what they're doing by killing the slaves like that is sort of this act slash ritual of terror that they went through well they had a loophole because every spring or fall, I forget, they would basically declare war on the helots. So you wouldn't, um, basically you didn't have to go through ritual purification afterwards because you were at war. Because if you kill during war, it's not the same as as murder. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Oh, yeah. So a legal loophole that, the, you know, the first lawyers over there. Yeah. And I mean, again, this also sort of goes back to the whole notion of the the wild hunt in which human sacrifice is performed, because, I mean, I kind of get the sense that's almost like what this was like. You know, they would release these sons of the nobility in the countryside. And I mean, yeah, the, the hell it's be hunted down. And so, again, it's, you know, it might sound really far out, but from what we can tell, there is a precedent for this in recorded history. Yeah. All right. So, how about the Fianna of Ireland? This is another really interesting bunch here. Yeah. So this these ones are, um, you know, same motifs again. Young aristocratic males. They're war bands. They left home, um, no property. They were um, trained in hunting, raiding. Um, they went through rites of passage, and they were often hired out as mercenaries. And then you'd also see. Uh, like separate kings um, in these um, Celtic traditions would have their own bands of basically these uh, Fianna. Um, and if you ever heard the story of like Finn McCool, that's like a popular um, Irish legend. It seems to be about one of these um, bands. And then I also have uh, I also have another quote by David Anthony. I'm just going to keep quoting him here because um, he's done a lot of this work. Um, uh, wolves and dogs, principal symbols, specific kind of Indo-European war band, the youthful war band composed of boys, uh, Indo-European institution. Anyway, um, the human bones in a famous tone of Bredredor in Sweden. So this is in Ireland, but it's, you know, it's close in the north up there dating 1300 to 1000 BC were from adolescence age 13 to 15. So perhaps they were 
there were remains of young raiders, and perhaps the much-discussed images inside the tomb showed the initiations of boys into warriors. Um, and, you know, same same kind of thing. Um, I'm sorry, I know we kind of got off track there, but so the Fianna, too, the, one of the main things that they would do as well was recite epic poetry about, you know, past deeds of bravery of the ancestors, you know. Um, and it seems like the Homeric tradition is kind of also rooted in this stuff. You know, especially like the Iliad, something like the Iliad, where you're basically celebrating, you know, these warriors. Yeah, this is something I've been trying to like look into more, but I feel like the Bardic tradition might have been related to this as well. I mean, especially, you know, when you look at uh, kind of the dynamics in Celtic society, I mean, the aristocracy were basically comprised in three tiers. There were the Druids, there were the warriors, and then there were the bards. Um, but early accounts of the choreo sort of going back, you know, to maybe some of like the Persian versions, um, you know, that kind of thing seemed to, and also from India itself, I mean, seemed to indicate that, you know, originally they were kind of like these warrior monks, you know, I mean, almost kind of combining aspects of the warrior and the uh, priest class, like either Jedis or maybe more accurately Sith Lords. <laughs> but, um, you know, also, I mean, they were trained in culture too. So, I mean, it would not surprise me uh, if they also, I mean, were taught poetry and possibly song. I mean, especially, uh, you know, when you sort of think of like uh, the connection of like uh, you know music with the road and that kind of thing, uh, it does sort of uh, have a certain rhyme to it, I guess. I don't know, but yeah, that is an aspect of this that I do think uh, I will be investigating more uh, going forward into the future because um, it seems like this would make sense, especially since so much of this culture was preserved later in ballads and that kind of thing. Um, and obviously that's been a, since probably time immortal, a great way to uh, uh, mythologize uh, warfare in general, you know, good old war song, war ballad, commemorating the battles and all this other good stuff. Yeah. Oh, anyway, yeah. oh, go for it. I was going to say that that's another thing that David Anthony talks about is um, that was another part of the technology. Basically, at these like funerals, you would recite or at these feasts, you would have this these epic, epic poetry where you'd recite these deeds of these ancestors. And it's like another way to memorialize these people, you know, because there's probably having these battles throughout wherever, you know, ancient prehistoric Europe and Asia and Middle East or whatever. And, you know, somebody's remembering this stuff. And you're talking about it and it's like it it's probably you know the guys who can make the best story up out of it are probably you know going to be the most popular that's why homer eventually gets written down i feel like because it's just these are the stories that people cared about they cared about what their ancestors did and who they fought and where they went um you know and it was the way to connect with them basically and the same thing with this cult of the ancestor where you're kind of you're kind of reliving these ancestors through yourself in this cult of the dead and then sometimes, like, if you can rise up and maybe be one of these, like, um, Coriolanos, like, Corios leaders, um, you you could start your own cult around you, you know? Um, and I feel like that's, like, the legend of, like, Hercules and stuff. It seems to be, you know, the more I look into this, it's, like, it feels like it's a war band that you just, 
you know, one person became prominent and, um, you know, you kind of mythologize this, this certain war band, you know, or separate war bands under the one umbrella. It's all Hercules now, you know? Yeah, I mean, it is, again, just so fascinating with how all this stuff has developed across these different civilizations. continues to manifest in the modern world which we're going to get into now briefly and well i mean we've got a couple ones here and it's so maybe not so brief but um anyway one of the most interesting re-emergences of the choreos in modern pop culture is actually through gaming uh rpgs role-playing games and it's uh, most prevalent in one called the Cold of Prax. Uh, so this was an early role-playing game from the late 1970s. But before we get into that subject proper, let's discuss the two gentlemen who developed it. So first off, tell us a bit about Mr. Greg Stafford here. Okay, cool. This is awesome because I, I wasn't actually familiar with this stuff. So this was fun to um, research and learn about because um, I'm a little familiar with like early uh, Dungeons and Dragons, but I wasn't so familiar with this. So Greg Stafford... Um, I found a great quote about he was a legendary game designer and here's a great quote about him that's called the Stafford rule and it says if you believe um, you've come up with a clever new game mechanic Greg Stafford already did it um, and this guy was basically known for like these really creative um, worlds and games he was really interested in um, myth and storytelling he was also a shaman um, so he had probably intimate knowledge of metaphysical realms or whatever you want to, you know, however you want to label that, um, and kind of brought a lot of that aspect of, um, you know, just belief, mysticism and, and myth into, um, the gaming worlds that he was involved in. All right. So Stafford developed an early fantasy universe based around the Chorios as well, which uh, was dubbed, uh, Gloranthia, I think. Glorantia, yes. Um, and it was inspired by um, different mythologies. He was really inspired by Joseph Campbell and Mercilia Eliad. Um, and he kind of created this world because he was exploring, um, he was trying to blend basically ancient societies and beliefs and kind of see how these things would spread. Kind of what we're hypothetically doing now. We're trying to trace the you know origins of these things and he was just doing it in a fictional place but using he wasn't using actual cultures but aspects of actual cultures um so this game or glorantha was the world that he created and it's interesting because it was it had a flat earth dome sky the world was shaped by mythic actions of gods um, it had a lot of archetypal imagery and like so it was not like i said not specific cultures but like you could equate it like they had a, he had an empire in it and you could equate that to an ancient empire you could equate it to um a modern empire invading somebody you know so it was just um it was very ahead of its time a lot of the stuff that he was doing all right well let's get into this next figure here mr steve perrin i think uh what's his story 
So Perrin was another one of these um, game designers. He worked for, seems worked for everybody, um, but he created the game, the RPG RuneQuest, which was basically um, a avenue for the world of Glorantha that Stafford created. So they together kind of made this cult cult of prax cult of prax um game i believe do you want to add anything to that yes i would not mind uh because i was actually a little familiar with this guy previously um when i was doing the research in that excellent article you sent me on this whole subject but yeah he's an interesting guy uh, one of the things that I thought, uh, or that really jumped out, which I believe is where I first became aware of him, was his uh, contributions to the Call of Cthulhu. Oh, Stafford. Sorry, I thought we were talking about that. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And they're getting the pair in here. Um, so, yeah, he did that, uh, which I thought was very interesting because, again, this has been a big part of, you know, the continual spread of the, of the uh, Lovecraft mythos and all this other good stuff. Uh, but also, too, and this is really fascinating, he was apparently one of the founding members of the Society for Creative Anachronisms, which had a lot of interesting characters around it. Of course, uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley and uh, the famous science fiction author behind the myths of Avalon and her husband, Walter Breen. Um, who is now mostly known as an arch pedophile. He was also a long-time oh. fixture in the fan fiction circles and what have you. Um, they were both deeply involved in a lot of this stuff for many years. Um, Paul Doerr, who has recently become a popular figure uh, for the Zodiac Killer, at least playing some kind of role, and it was involved with the early Society of Creative Anachronisms. Oh. Uh, so, and it's also, I kind of am wondering too if, there, I have to go back now and uh, go through some of my books. I'm not sure if there was a tie between Perrin or Door, but I could definitely see Door being into like the role-playing games and what have you. Uh, and then obviously, again, also Leonard Lake, I mean, was another guy who showed up at some of these early uh, Society for Creative Anachronisms functions. He was photographed with the unicorn, of course, and then there were the Zells uh, in the Church of All World and so many other uh, interesting characters who showed up for the early society of creative anachronism so this is why steve perrin is it's fascinating that he turns up uh at the founding of the sca and then later goes on to do some of these different games like the call of cthulhu and this one here sort of rooted in cure uh koros and um Again, you know, I, I've talked about this before, and you know, the show I just recently did with J.J. Vance on uh, the Kentucky Vampire Cults. I I like Dungeons and Dragons quite a bit. I'm more of a Magic the Gathering man, but I'm into this kind of stuff. I, you know, I had dismissed a lot of the claims typically made by Christian fundamentalists about these kinds of games years is complete and utter nonsense again i really enjoy this stuff i love playing magic the gathering especially but uh, there are a lot of weird things connected to some of these rpgs especially some of the more obscure ones again which we kind of got into with the kentucky vampire cult episode and yeah when you see the circles that a guy like steve Perrin travels in i mean 
I do feel like you almost have to maybe give a little bit of credence to some of this stuff, at least in a few cases. It's a complex relationship, to put it mildly, and I don't know that this, and I'm not trying to say that this means that RPGs are innately evil or anything like that, not at all, but I mean, I do think that, uh, especially with some of the more, uh, you know, darker ones and what have you, I mean, it could be potentially a stepping stone for somebody who's already a little unstable into some even more extreme stuff, especially when, again, you know, if um. Well, you know, you're maybe a budding serial killer, and then you start going back and really... And again, I mean, I, I, you know, I know that this is... I don't like saying that, but again, you know, this was a milieu that a guy like Leonard Lake and possibly a guy involved in Zodiac killings are wandering around in, so... Well, you're creating you're creating scenario fictional scenarios yeah that, you know you guys like react in some way you know what i mean i mean uh you know it's like these guys are discovering something like the curios which you know again is very romanticized in these rpgs much more so than what the actual institution was like so yeah it, it you know 99 of the people will be fine playing this stuff but there's always the chance somebody really gets into it really goes back and looks into the the history of it and starts thinking gosh maybe this stuff really was a great thing that we should try to bring back yeah well yeah i, I i'm i'm gonna tend to agree with you on that one um that's why i was really curious about that because i couldn't find a lot of bios with these guys um stuff it was mostly just about like their game work you know especially like the one guy stafford he's like oh yeah he's a shaman and it just like briefly mentions that i'm like hey, you know what talk about that a little more anywhere over here like he's obviously going to be interested in some weird shit here you know um but yeah, I, I would tend to agree with you like that. It's it's you know it could be a gateway. You know what I mean? It's not necessarily bad, but um, like you said, as somebody who's a little unstable, this is going to open doors um, and avenues for things that might not normally be exposed to. It's interesting, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's just the more that I've looked at the like, kind of the history of the role playing games and stuff. I mean, there is just a lot of strange things about the the cast of characters behind it, to put it mildly. Uh, but anyway, I don't want us to get this too sidetracked here. But but again, you know, just to emphasize this. I mean, they're putting this stuff into these games like back in the seventies. I mean. You know, again, we're mostly like working with some really good academic accounts that nonetheless only, you know, have come out like what in the last 20 years or something. So these guys were probably really digging back into some older text to get information on this, too, man. I mean, uh, which tends to indicate to me that they took this stuff really seriously. But oh, oh what's his name? Definitely did. Greg Stafford definitely did. I mean, mm -hmm. You know, if you're studying Eliad and are a shaman, then you're taking it very seriously, you know. And the whole game mechanics, I think, behind, you know, this Glorantha world and the cults of Prax is basically, like, entering these metaphysical, like, you're a hero who can enter these metaphysical worlds and get help from the gods, which sounds a lot like shamanism and also kind of what we're talking about of, like, this ancestor worship cult, you know. Yeah, and these techniques, like, people you people use these things it's like if you're a shaman like this is real to you you know what i mean and yeah. so i don't know so it's it's definitely there's something to what you're saying there for sure
Um, so, all right, the, how about the cult of Brax? What do you got first in this thing? Yeah, so again, um, it was it was part of this world of it was set in the world of Glorantha, and he basically it's a uh, companion piece for the RuneQuest RPG. And it's basically just a list of these different cults and their belief systems in this game. Um, and he, the authors describe the game as um, a, these cults are vehicles for providing communication between living people and cosmic entities known as deities. So that's just what we were talking about, basically. Um, you're entering other realms and communicating with whatever these things are, you can call them gods or archetypes or, you know, however you want to label them. Um, with um, And then these different kind of cults were kind of based loosely off uh, these different step people. Cause, and like we said, like how would they even really know this stuff back then? Cause there wasn't a lot of that much archeology span on the subject, you know what I mean? But he's got like a herd mother god, a war god, a traitor god, a city god, a berserker god, a ancestor worship god. So, and these are probably like all things that existed within each of these cultures. And he's just kind of taking aspects of them and, um, you know, making separate cults around each of these ideas. You know, I think one of the ideas um, in one of the cults was uh, you were you were cast out by your family, and then you have to go live in the countryside and um to survive you know it's the same thing you know it's the same thing that we're talking about here all right to wrap up let's get into some of the other possible modern manifestations of the choreos it's going to be really groovy guys so to my mind something like skull and bones would be an obvious instance of this much like the early choreos it's a literal brotherhood of death so what are your thoughts on this henry yeah, I think that's a that's an excellent one right there. Um, I think to like a lesser extent, just the institute of just like just college almost for like our modern society of just like stepping out of your um, you know adolescent space into like a liminal space before you go to adulthood. I think that has a lot of um, correlations. But when I think of um, maybe other cults or something, I I think of the finders actually. Um, and the pictures they found of the kids sacrificing goats um, there, you know, and it makes me think of MK Ultra and, uh, you know, uh, trauma-based mind control. Uh, you know, not that that's, it's a direct correlation, but it seems to be using some of these techniques to kind of get the same results, you know? Um, and I mean, Skull and Bones is a great one because it's, it's like the elite of the elite, right? um joining this like death society um yeah, based... i mean and th that kind of brings up another point too that i uh will make here about why i think the you know the institution spread and appeared in so many societies kind of getting back to its like practicality of it because it seems like uh you know as we get further into recorded history like we sort of talked about with sparta or Athens by this point in time a lot or you know also really with Lupercalia and the uh the, the uh, colleges that did them in ancient Rome I mean a lot of this stuff was basically designed uh for the aristocracy and I think it went into the you know ongoing preoccupation that elites and pretty much all societies have always had with the notion of going soft 
you know, that the next generation aren't going to be able to take up the white man's burden or whatever you want to call it. I mean, the way that the old man could. So, yeah, you know, you needed a way to kind of toughen these kids up. I mean, in the case of uh, uh, British society, for instance, I mean, this was really the purpose of the quote-unquote public school system. Yeah, it starts early over there, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And again, I mean, there was nothing public about these schools. I mean, this was basically, they were very exclusive private schools for the sons of the elite. And if you've read a lot of the accounts about what went on there, I, it was very horrendous. There was a lot of bad hazing, bullying, assaults. In some cases, the kids were badly sexual abused either by other students or the faculty i mean all in the kind of name of uh or all for the purpose of you know making sure that they were uh ready to go out and become officers in the east india company or something like that uh, but i think you see something very you know even more extreme maybe with skull and bones and trying to continue with this tradition because i mean it's in this case you almost have initiation rituals that seem like they're literally based off of stuff that the couriers were doing or regalia i mean obviously they share the black robes in common i mean supposedly the crypt is decked out with all the bones and stuff there but also and this is why when we were talking earlier about uh and i wanted to bring up the pits because there have been discussions that there were potentially mock funerals involved uh, with the kids at Kresnos Amerskay when they were initiated into these cults and obviously that's one of the more famous aspects of the skull and bone initiation you you know you lie in a crypt uh you share some kind of uh deep secret uh, some kind of personal longing or something like that with your fellow bonesmen so, yeah, I mean, I think in the case, this case specifically, you very much see an instance where um, some of these elite families, I think, potentially were deliberately trying to recreate this. I mean, even down to the whole uh, kind of nickname for it is the Brotherhood of Death. I mean, again, this is pretty much literally what the Curios were. I mean, they were in uh, different cultures, a Brotherhood of Death, especially in the Wild Hunt personification um and again you know it kind of brings up you know the famous story about geronimo's skull and how i mean they went out into the grave looted it and kind of a more civilized i suppose version of this kind of activity but i mean yeah it's um it's a fascinating notion to certainly consider with that um well on that note, let's get into another uh, milieu that also possesses its own skull and bones. I actually just recently found out that the University of Utah has uh, a skull and bones there that appears to be based on the more, that uh, appears to be connected to the more famous one at Yale. Really interesting. Yeah, well, it makes sense because, I mean, a lot of the same families buying skull and bones also help put together Mormonism, a uh, yeah. topic that I'll get into eventually in my Society of Cincinnati series. Uh but anyway, so as you guys might have discerned, early Mormonism and modern fundamentalist Mormon sex, that's, that's what we're going to talk about here for a second, seem like a fairly apt comparison as well. So what says you, Henry? Yeah, definitely. That hits on the um, themes of the, they cast out the young men in their society, right? Usually they like leave them on the side of the road somewhere. And you're like, all right, see ya. Because of that tension, like we were talking about between like the older males, the property owners, 
and the younger men. So you basically send them out to like make their own um, living in some way, you know? Um, well, it's fascinating because I mean, like in the early days of Mormonism, I mean, they almost were in the a literal courier's function. Oh, but yeah, there were war states, right. you know, because yeah. I mean, you know, they basically were a war band that was cast yeah. out of the mainline United States and they went and they founded all these colonies. I mean, with the Mormon uh, militia and all this other stuff, I mean, across the I mean, really, the Mormons were a major part, I mean, of settling the West and you sure, know, yeah. going all into California and what have you. So uh, I definitely think there's something with that and especially early Mormonism. I mean, it was very you know again i mean we have a tendency to uh and you know and i mean not without reason there are some things about mormonism that are kind of silly but it tends to obscure the fact that uh in the early years and i mean against you know and still amongst millennia the more you know fundamentalist or uh let's just say extremists in the mainline church uh i mean it was really hardcore you yeah, know, like the like the LeBarons and stuff, you know. Yeah, I mean, because yeah. this was a religion that really, I mean, was spawned on the frontier. I mean, their founder was, you know, I mean, <laughs> just killed by a mob. They've been driven out of pretty much every community they had tried to set up shop in. They eventually had to go out into the wilderness and mark. You got the polygamy too. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's just yeah it's really remarkable i mean how much the early mormon church was almost like i mean you know a literal manifestation of an american choreos yeah that's super fascinating i didn't even think about that aspect the colonization aspect yeah you're totally right yeah they they, they were at the forefront of that you know i mean in bringing the whole concept of americanism to the west because i mean again you know i mean that's so fundamentally ingrained in uh, the mormon religion to begin with so there's just so much with that i mean you, you could look up and then you know again there were all the uh theories for years that you know there was this sort of violent uh death cult even within the mormon church they weren't called the death eaters i can't remember there was like an assassination squad yeah yeah exactly like uh zane gray wrote about them in writers in the purple sage so i mean death angels maybe something like that but there were yeah i mean even for years i mean after the church was kind of settled in utah rumors that they had this sort of assassination squad and what have you and then obviously in the modern manifestations you have the kids that are cast out i mean you have some of the really extreme fundamentalist sects like the barons and what have you that were very much militant i mean almost like warrior cults you know and contemporary yeah. guises so yeah, there's just there's a lot of that with Mormonism, and like I said, they even have their own freaking skull and bones at the University of Utah, which uh, it'll bring them young founded. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that that uh, reminds me of something else that I forgot to touch on earlier with the um, tension between the um, the older males and the younger males would be like the uh, myth of like Kronos and uh, eating Zeus, and the same thing before that with Uranus eating Kronos. You know what I mean? Just this myth of like the father uh, swallowing his children, basically, to prevent them from becoming too powerful. Yeah, 
Now, I was kind of thinking another thing with Mormonism, too, and the Koryos is also like sort of the whole connection with the ancestors and stuff, because there's just such obsession in Mormonism. I mean, not just with the literal like genealogy and what have you. But I mean, what is it like? They always want to baptize, I mean, their ancestors into the church. I mean, they even have that. In fact, I think it's God, like some kind of bull shrine or something like that, like in the basement of a lot of the churches specifically where they do the the baptism of the ancestors apologies if i'm confusing but the no, i think i think you're right i don't know if there's if it's a bull shrine but i mean that would tie it right in with like mithra and you know some yeah. of that, which seems to be a, a mithra seems to be another one of these choreos gods as well actually yeah yeah mithras is very much a part of this as well he very much is um that's kind of like the persian slash iranian version of the uh the courier's kind of founding god uh and again very closely tied with militaries and all this other good stuff yep. roman yeah roman military for sure that's all right that's probably why the romans uh adapted it so well they're like oh this this is just like us you know <laughs> yeah 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 exactly all right well then for the big one as we uh come to our conclusion there how about modern day special operations forces all right um well the first thing that i think of is the um, well like these lifelong special forces guys that basically never leave um the armed forces you know they're kind of we could equate them to kind of these like quasi shamanic figures um that never left their choreos band um, but I'm I'm interested in a peculiar anecdote anecdote on um I think it's the Fort Bragg. That's where they have the special forces base, right? Yeah, yeah, that's where Jay Sock is headquartered and um, the army uh, uh, special operations forces are at. Yeah, so I remember the one story where it was like 15 of them go out on a training mission and or 16 of them come out and 15 come back and one of them's head is chopped off or missing. Um yeah <laughs> um seems like a initiation ceremony gone awry or maybe that was the purpose of it you know um that's the thing i think of immediately it's like they're they're you know in or 09a or something you know just there have to be these warrior cults inside the military um that if they're not you know using some of these techniques they're picking and choosing different ones and you know just doing it themselves you know um yeah that i feel like that's more prevalent in our armed forces than you know most people would like to think um because it seems to be a motif throughout time i mean like knights templars you know just with these warrior monk like elite forces you know that um you'll see time and time again and it's just you have to myth mythologize this stuff and you need initiation ceremonies for it um you know there's you have badges that are oftentimes, you know, wolves or dogs or something, right? Dogs, the dogs of war, right? Um, yeah, it's just so closely associated with this stuff. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's like it's ever left, um, you know, the subconscious really. Well, I mean, even beyond that, in a lot of ways, I mean, I think an argument could be made that the Corios were the uh the sort of original special operations forces because again typically uh when you know because they were used for outright military purposes uh by the host civilizations that they came from but frequently when they were used in warfare 
like you know for instance like in ancient Greece uh you know this was actually one of the bigger conflicts with like the mainline hoplites uh in Sparta and what have you you know where they were fighting with the phalanxes you had like the conventional forces that fought like in ranks and what have you and then you had your variations of the choreos who basically fought as you know guerrilla fighters they went behind enemy lines they did sabotage operations all this other kind of stuff so in a lot of ways just the, even the style of warfare that they were known for was kind of the precursor and uh to what we would now think of as using for special operations forces in addition to also being you know regarded as these elite units and a lot of different civilizations for that reason maybe not necessarily in sparta but in the flip side of the coin the spartan military was probably grossly overrated in the first place but that's another topic but yeah so i i think like even from just you know kind of the the beginning i mean you're almost trying to create a military unit that is modeled upon the kind of stuff that these you know bands were doing all the way back uh you know since time immortal and then on top of that especially within army culture and like the psychological warfare which again and this is another thing that's kind of important and i think another fascinating aspect of this like a lot of people don't realize this but in uh, the military and especially the army psychological warfare is not considered an intelligence function it's part of a special it's part of the special operations forces the army psi war stuff is under the command of the army special operations uh forces oh. or it's yeah the army special operations command excuse me and i mean again even within jsoc i mean all the psychological warfare in the military falls under their purview practically uh, because again psychological warfare is considered an operation not an intelligence function so and this is where it gets really fascinating i mean a big part of psychological warfare is the creating of creation of ethos so i mean this almost sort of ties back into what we were talking about before with these guys being not just these warrior monks potentially but also these poets and these bards as well which again i mean i know it sounds sort of outlandish but within army psychological warfare where the you know there has always been the close ties with the special operations forces you have these guys like edward lansdale like michael aquino who were obsessed with the occult and who actually did incorporate a lot of this stuff into the approaches for psychological warfare i mean of course with lansdale it's well known how he used the vampire mythos for instance in the philippines and the all-seeing eye i mean just the whole concept of elimination by illumination so uh within uh, military and especially army culture there is this tradition of using uh you know this more mystical kind of stuff for the purposes of psychological warfare and i mean it's you know uh, <laughs> maybe going to some insane lengths when you look at some of the musings of guys like colonel john alexander and other green beret and some of these other folks but yeah it is fascinating to see how um you know there is this modern manifestation and certainly when you look at something like the order of nine angles or well i mean in the case of the temple of set i mean with michael aquino you literally have a an instant modern instance of a, a cult that was basically founded by somebody in this milieu which again you know given the what we've discussed over the course of this civilization over the course of this conversation um this should definitely make a lot more sense now than it might have initially to some people 
Uh, but yeah, it does seem like that there is this potential tradition. In the case of something like, you know, the Order of the Nine Angles, I mean, there's also indications that some of the British people uh, who helped set that up back in the day were also involved in the uh, the British version of Gladio, so they might have been in contact with, you know, I mean, American special operators as well in this capacity. That's uh, something William Ramsey gets into in his excellent book in the Order of Nine Angles. But yeah, you know, this just there's a lot to this i think and you know again there's obviously some possibilities this is something that uh you know i've discussed with some researchers on this but i think there's a possibility that maybe the smiley face thing might be related to some kind of militaristic cult as well uh, yeah i had the same inclinations from listening to some of the stuff that you were talking about and the ramsey stuff yeah could be like a you know a cult initiation you got to go kill somebody you know um so it's going to be located in the army bases right yeah i mean there's just a lot of you know and again we go on i mean the church of scientology is another cult that's sort of grown out of this militaristic milieu so yeah there's a lot of possibilities you know with this we don't know what's necessarily going on behind closed doors but i mean there does seem to have been a rather incredible amount of fascination with the creation mythos within some of these psychological warfare communities and specifically using this kind of proto-magical thinking in it so yeah it's it would not surprise me if this was in part because some of these guys were aware of the traditions the choreos and saw how it could be you know, applied effectively to their modern manifestation and special operations forces. Well, you got any other thoughts here, Henry, before uh, we sign off? Um, I would just um, recommend anybody who's interested in um, Proto-Indo-Europeans to check out the David Anthony Horse Wheel Language book. It's really um, fascinating. has a lot of good archaeology in it. Um, it'll kind of, it's very illuminating over thousands of years of time in prehistory which is kind of like a blur a lot of the times you know um and just thinking about what you were, you were just talking about that you know these special forces it's like using these techniques it's like if it ain't broke you know don't fix it and it's like these techniques seem to work to basically create these warriors you know and how often do you hear like these special forces guys like coming back and like you know murdering like a bunch of people or their wives or something you know what i mean it's like it's really hard to kind of turn this turn this stuff off you know once you've been uh um kind of dipped into that world you know which i i, I find that that part to be interesting um well also too because you're really existing in that kind of liminal state when you are a special operator i mean a lot of times you know you're behind enemy lines and whatnot and I mean, again, a lot of people don't realize this, but I mean, in the case of a lot of, you know, human like spy craft that the CIA does and what have you or the other intelligence services, I mean, typically the on the ground stuff is done either by guys who are still a part of the special operations forces or uh, have been involved with them at some point. Because, I mean, these are the guys and specifically a lot of times the Green Berets 
who really have the training to do that kind of stuff. I mean, in theory, Green Berets are supposed to learn a lot about the culture that they're deploying at. In theory, they should be fluent in the language so that they can go in and, you know, basically blend into the background, link up with rebel groups, or even potentially create them, you know, train them in warfare uh, so that they can become effective you know, batch of freedom fighters or something. I mean, almost kind of creating a, a warrior band of Kuros or something to that effect. Well, that's the same thing you would see in these Kuros uh, expansions as well. Is like some like when when they colonized, it usually wasn't just the Kuros. They would go into other territories and they would find people that were um, disinfected, criminals, uh, runaway slaves, and these would basically join their band. I mean, it's in the origin story of Rome. It's the same thing. It was like all these degenerates, basically that. Um, Romulus and Remus gathered up and created the city with, you know. So you go find disgruntled people who are in the culture that you're basically trying to invade and you recruit them to your cause, you know. It's the same thing. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, again, this is why I think that uh, there's a very strong possibility many of the anthropologists, and again, quite a few of them were employed as part of the, uh, the different special operations commands for the purposes of going to go to these constructs of psychological warfare and it would not shock me if there uh, was a certain interest in studying the choreos and how it could be applied uh to the modern manifestations especially given all the stuff that we've already unpacked uh, oh sure oh hang on that note then we will sign off for now it has uh, been a great discussion sir I want to thank you so much for joining us. And again, folks, please check out this man's artwork. Henry Haplack is fantastic. His stuff is out of this world. And he even does some uh, great depictions of this whole choreo stuff as well. So another reason to give him a try. Um, oh, thank you, Stephen. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and with that, I will say to you guys, as always, thank you so very much for listening and your support. And good night and good luck to you all. Come on baby, pick me up Out here in my wiki up Sick and tired of fucking up Sick and tired of pushing luck Voodoo blue got juice in it Swallow what I'm about to spit Don't got 86 from the copper queen For singing this, I took it to the goat J We were right, my people there They feeling me Down low skin, roll more characters Than Stephen King
Never getting used to it Got bales of weed and cannibals With Santa went diffused in it Shoot it over the castle wall The Migra can't patrol it off From Berlin to the Great Wall The greatest walls are bound to fall So legalize it, Vato About a Genghis Chapo Come on, legalize it Don't need to advertise it The weed cures the cancer Everybody even caught or realized If a farmer don't make cash money When we rock that stash, honey Best believe they sooner take it out your ass, honey Come on, the man ain't getting wealthy With people getting healthy, right? Talking about high AZ Talking about that BMC We got no economy if we ain't got Excuse me, please Said I'm just eating my burrito Not the droids you're looking for See you all on payday See you at the Safeway Bisbee lives on crazy checks BP on that fast pay I sing my hooly blues, y'all I don't make the rules, y'all Just paying my dues, y'all But I'm just saying Sorry, hippies Great white father, don't make payroll Forget about your maple It's just the one thing that ain't too clear I said people always bitching about the government here But that war administration's our whole civilization What?